Hey, thanks for listening to the Grace Church Sermon Podcast. For more information on Grace Church, visit us at gracemc.org. All right, good morning, church. Um, just catch you up on the weekend. Um, uh, Pastor Nick and I and the elders got a chance to do our first elder retreat of 2024, and we had a great time. Uh, there was a lot of uh, prayer and thinking and sharing. Um, and I'm really seeing a, a level of uh, wisdom and humility and courage in your elders that is just so vital for us in this season of ministry. Uh, recognize that uh, uh, they're going to be manifesting those qualities, those abilities. We would need to be sharing in that too. Um, uh, we'll be having the assessment report that so many of you have contributed to. Uh, that'll be shared right after uh, Easter. So within a week or two uh, between uh, from Easter, uh, we're going to get to hear about all the God, good things that God is doing in this church and maybe where there are some gaps or some things that we would we want to invite God's work into even more deeply. Also, um, I've been I've uh, had the blessing of seeing a couple pastors come up here and preach in my absence. And so this is you guys really have a good uh, kind of stable of uh, good pastors, good preachers uh, here. So that's another really good uh, and unusual thing for churches. And then we're glad to have uh, Pastor Jesse back. Uh, but even in his absence, he put together a great team, worship team, uh, that led us in meaningful worship. And so I like that about Jesse. I like that about the team. So there are so many good things uh, happening here. Uh, one thing I didn't tell you about with the uh, elders, uh, just to the praying and the sharing and the talking, uh, we did something that was a, a little unusual. Um, create a little bit of anxiety for some of us. Uh, we uh, we did some knife throwing, not at each other. I mean, we had a target, but we, we did some knife throwing. So it was fun. We did, we had some good work and we had some good fun. And so, like uh, Jesse said, if you've got your Bibles, we're in Matthew chapter eight, starting at verse twenty-three. And as you turn there, my question to you guys is: Are you afraid of anything? Does anything have you chewing your fingernails or keeping you up late at night? Uh, here's this survey. It's about a little over a year old. Um, here in the United States, here are the top five fears of 2022 for the Americans. So I don't know if this represents you or not, but let's kind of look at that. First, right off the top of the list, um, uh, we have trouble trusting. We're afraid of corrupt government officials. 62% of the people survey said that. Uh, people, um, there's a fear about people that we love becoming ill. Um, a fear about Russia using some nuclear weapons. That fear has been around a long time. Um, people I love dying. Of course, that's a, a fear. And then the U.S. involved in another world war. All those fears that are representative of some measure, some portion of the United States. But I want us to look at number one again. The very people that we elect we're most afraid of. The people that we put in power over us, we have trouble trusting. What's up with that? What's up with that? We struggle. We're afraid of those people who have power that even we put into power in many cases. Hold on to that as we dive into our passage. Verse 23. And when he, meaning Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the, the boat was swamped by the waves, 
but he was asleep. That snoring sound, it's in the best Greek manuscripts. I've seen it. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Here's another question. Does God ever sleep? Does the Son of God ever go to sleep so that he's unaware of what's happening? I think we can answer that with a solid no. John 5, 17, Jesus equates himself with God, and God is saying that God the Father never stops working, sustaining his creation, never sleeps. So while Jesus in his humanity does sleep, in his divinity, he's always conscious. He's all-knowing. Jesus never stopped being God. Here's what we never read in Scripture. And Jesus being startled was suddenly caught completely unaware. We never read, Jesus, leaping up from his slumber, is taken aback by the intense storm raging all around him. Now, what we do read is that Jesus rebukes his disciples, and then he rebukes the sea. I find that interesting. In the midst of the storm, Jesus doesn't first deal with the turmoil in the sea. He deals with the terror in his disciples. The fear of the disciples, their unsettled faith, is of more importance to Jesus than the unsettled sea. But I'm not sure the disciples saw it that way. And we don't, we don't know what they're thinking. But if I were a passenger in that sinking boat, and then Jesus rebukes me for my lack of faith in the middle of a raging storm, I mean... I might not say it out loud, but I'd probably be thinking something like, okay, Jesus, storm first, you know, rebuke second, you know, get your priorities straight. But Jesus chose to correct the excessive fear in the disciples first. Again, that's interesting. Of course, some fear is expected if you don't recognize who's in control. Some fear is completely understandable, but fear must not wash our faith overboard. Now, why does Jesus calm the storm? Is he protecting himself? No. Jesus would not drown. He cannot drown because he can create air out of thin air. Even underwater, he can create air. Jesus wants to save his disciples, and he does it with nothing but his words. So Jesus saves people when he speaks, though he could save them in his sleep. Jesus never gets surprised by storms of life or the storms in your life, because Jesus is always with it, and he's always with us. Jesus was never threatened by this storm. Jesus did not need to calm this storm, so 
Again, why did he do it? To save others? Yeah. But not just that. We would be wrong to say that Jesus calmed this storm just to save his disciples. Yes, Jesus saves his disciples of every generation. But he also wants the disciples to know that they cannot save themselves. That was a learning for them. And that's the time when they should have chose to exercise faith rather than experience fear. Now, we've got to be careful because this passage is descriptive of Jesus in that moment. It's not prescriptive of Jesus for all times, meaning he is able, but he's not obligated to deliver any of us. I mean, he's God. He can choose. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Uh, the young Jewish men exiled to Babylon? Remember their response when threatened with a fiery death to abandon their faith? Daniel chapter 3, verse 17, they told King Nebuchadnezzar, if this, meaning being thrown in a fiery furnace, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So when God calls for it, and he has a right to it, Dying for your faith is a better choice than living in fear. What we see in the boat is Jesus has power over nature. Jesus is sovereign over his creation. Our response to danger is to strengthen our faith because Jesus can deliver. Let's see Jesus' power. The second miracle, starting in verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled. <laughs> they were afraid. They fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave, to leave their region. Starting with the end of this passage, <laughs> wow, city folk. Can you see yourselves doing this? Could you as city folks kind of walk up on the scene with Jesus and seeing the previously demon-possessed men who used to terrorize you and then seeing your drowned pigs. Would you look at all of that and say, Jesus, you know, you've done enough. Can you leave? We'll get back to that in just a minute. 
Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' temptations at the hand of Satan. Satan's the ruler of evil, and here we see two demon-possessed men. Now, maybe you think there's no such thing as Satan or, or demons who have destructive power. If so, recognize that you're in disagreement with Jesus. Jesus speaks to them here, and he commands them to leave the two men that they have possessed and terrorized. Here, Jesus expresses sovereign, authoritative power over specific evil beings, not some amorphous, impersonal evil force that may exist. Maybe one of the great deceptions of our educated society today is to think that that evil beings were just fabrications of ancient, unenlightened civilizations. Are we so smart now? Are we so smart that we don't believe or recognize the destructive, powerful presence of evil beings? If so, then we're smarter than Jesus. Notice the reactions of the demons. They spoke, and they were afraid because they knew Jesus was the Son of God. In verse 29, we, we read there two questions, right after one right after the other. And behold, they cried out. The demons are afraid. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us uh, before the time? And so here the demons have answered a question with a question. What are you going to do with us? Are you here to torment us? Jesus is sure getting asked a lot of questions here. Remember the disciples? Remember the question they asked on that boat in the storm? What did they ask about Jesus? What sort of man is this that even the the winds and the seas obey him? The demons are like, oh, I can answer that. Son of God. Sovereign, authoritative, all-powerful son of God. And apart from God the Father and John the Baptist, the only beings in Matthew at this point who know this are Satan, which we saw in Matthew 4, and some of his demons right here in Matthew 8. So evil beings have supernatural insight. They have supernatural power. But Jesus commanded the demons to leave. He spoke to them, removing them from the men that they had possessed and sent them right into the pigs. Now, in comparison to Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, both of them mention the same account. Matthew's account here is very succinct and really just kind of focuses on Jesus' power to expel the demons with one word. Go. Again, Jesus, authoritative, powerful. Now, you might be asking, well, why didn't Jesus just judge them right then and there? Why didn't he send them to the place of eternal torment right then? That's what the demons were afraid of. That's what they were afraid of was going to happen to them. The lake of fire. The simple answer of why Jesus didn't judge them right away is because it was not time yet. Did you notice that the demons referred to that time in verse 29? That's the time of the final judgment. That's Revelation 19. That's Revelation 20. When all evil beings are thrown into the lake of fire, suffering for all eternity, it's coming, but it's not yet. 
And we look at verses 31 and 32. All we can do is speculate. You might have some questions like me. Why did the demons ask to be cast into the pigs in the first place? Why does Jesus even grant that request? And what happened to the demons when the herd of swine drowned? Well, we can't accurately read between the lines. We might could speculate, but we don't have the time for that this morning. But if you want to come up here after the service and ask me about this, I have some biblically informed ideas about it. But for now, look again at the reaction of the, the herdsmen and the city residents. I mean, fear was pervasive in the demons and the herdsmen and the city folk. We read in verse 33 that the herdsmen didn't just stroll back to town. They fled. They were afraid. They had a fearful story to tell. And that fear swept through the city folk also, even more as they came to see what had happened for themselves. And I find it interesting when you contrast the fearful responses. In fear, the demons had asked Jesus to to send them away from him. But the city folk, in their fear, they asked Jesus to go away. Literally, the city folk preferred their pigs over the promised one. Literally, these city folk preferred their swine over their Savior. I mean, we can just thank them for being so upfront about it. In fear, they looked at their city's herd, these 2,000 pigs from, I think it's Luke's account. Probably everybody's pigs were there. It's a huge financial loss. They look at the floating pig carcasses and then at Jesus, and out of fear of anything worse happening, they're like, Jesus, if this is what you do, could you just leave? Maybe an early application question for us. When we're afraid of losing something that we really value, maybe value too much, what is it that we prefer more than Jesus? And this, is, this isn't just about coming to faith. This is about maturing in faith. Every day, I, you, we cling to something in one hand and we push Jesus away with the other. What is that? Every day we make choices to depend on someone or something other than Jesus. So what is, what is our go-to that takes us away from? Jesus. What about money? Money's power. Being affluent, more affluent than others, that generates influence. You can do things with wealth that you can't do in poverty. Do you desire money more than the Messiah? And what about intellect? I mean, knowledge is power too. I mean, People clamor for others who know things. Do you value what your mind considers more than what Jesus delivers? What about physical appearance? Physical beauty manifests a power to influence too. I mean, from cars to cologne, sexy cells. Do we desire to be fair of face more than full of faith? 
When something goes wrong in the pursuit of what we really want, again, maybe too much, whether it went south because of us or not, what is it that we will compromise for? What is it that we will ignore the Son of God and the principle of God's for in order to pursue some blessings of God? This rejection of Jesus is the response of Jew and Gentile alike. We see it here in the Gentiles. This powerful exorcism uh, delivered uh, terrorized Gentiles in a Gentile care, uh, territory. This is a mission to Gentiles in this passage, maybe exclusively. Gentiles are people that good, God-fearing Jews would not even associate with, much less rescue from demonic possession. In expelling these demons, what Jewish Jesus, Jesus does, the Son of God, what he's doing here is, is he's keeping ancient promises. A promise that God the Father made several times, thousands of years before. Jesus is the promised seed of Genesis 3.15, who God promised will conclusively crush Satan and his forces one day. Jesus is the promised descendant of Abraham, the seed, the offspring that, that God promised him and Sarah, through whom all nations of the earth will be blessed. So here's what we see. First, Jesus has power over evil. Jesus is sovereign over any and all demonic beings. Second, in fulfillment of the promise to be Savior of the world, Jesus powerfully delivers not just his fellow Jews, but other nationalities from the consequences of evil and sin and suffering. And third, even in the face of miraculous provision, Jesus faces rejection. These Gentiles are more angry and afraid about what they've lost financially than what they could gain spiritually. Let's turn our attention to the last passage, Matthew 9, 1 through 8. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And had we been at this miraculous healing too, we too would have been afraid, meaning there would be deep awe, deep awe and glorifying God. Great power had just removed a great tragedy. The Jesus is in Capernaum now. That's his hometown there, his home base for ministry in Galilee. And again, Matthew's more succinct in his account than we read in Luke and Mark. 
In those accounts, there's way more detail on the paralytic's four friends who dug a hole in the roof to lower him down because there were way too many people for them to walk him through the door. In Mark and Luke, there's also way more shared about the thoughts of the scribes and the Pharisees. Here we uh, we see that uh, only that they said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. And now this is the first time that the teachers of the law clearly oppose Jesus in Galilee. And the accusation is blasphemy. Blasphemy is where a human insults God, insults the honor of God. This includes misusing the name of God, for which the penalty is death by stoning in the Old Testament. Mentally, silently, these teachers charge Jesus with blasphemy because they believe that he's dishonoring God by claiming to have the power and authority to forgive sins, which only God can do. And obviously, they're right. They're right. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was forgiving sins, but they were also terribly wrong because God is exactly who Jesus is. This morning, we pointed out some different emphases between the Gospels that record these accounts. But you know what they all include? You know what they all say the same here? It's Jesus' words to the teachers, which he said so that everyone could hear. This phrase is recorded in every one of the Gospels, that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. That was important to all the gospel accounts. There, Jesus uses one of his favorite phrases to describe himself. It comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where in the future one day, one like a son of man is given everlasting dominion and glory over all people, over all creation. Only divinity has that. So Jesus is clearly connecting his obvious ability to miraculously heal with his divine authority to forgive sin. Jesus does both. He heals and he forgives because he's not only a divine healer, he is divinity himself. Jesus' healing is really more about revealing. I mean, Jesus heals this man Uh, Jesus healing this man, it's way more about revealing himself as the Son of Man. Jesus has the power over sickness and sin. Jesus is sovereign over physical and spiritual destruction, and oh, would that be our response now in worship, in submission to Jesus, who alone delivers us from eternal destruction. So as we wrap this up, what have we heard? Well, Jesus delivers delivers people of little faith. He kept them from a watery grave. Jesus delivers people possessed by great evil, delivered two men from living demon-possessed lives in literal graves, a literal graveyard. And then Jesus delivers a man who is sinful from a body that is paralyzed and is spiritually dead. Those are miracles, powerful, sovereign acts of God that vastly transcend human ability. We can't unhear this, but we could miss the point. 
we could miss the point. If, if all we did was focus on the physical miracles, so don't let the raging wind, the screams of demons, and the shouts of the crowd's amazement drowned out Jesus' words in your ears. The climax that all these miracles point to is, is what Jesus declares of himself to the crowd, which is the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive your sins. And that also happens right here, right now. On this earth, at this time, and in our lives. Can I get an amen? Amen. Through Jesus, God forgives sin. Amen? Amen. You see, the power of the promised one proclaims Jesus is the Holy One. The power of the exalted ruler declares Jesus as our Savior, our crucified Savior. Jesus delivers people who don't deserve deliverance. That's his grace and mercy to us. What I mean is none of these people in these passages can be described as as living a life or responding to God in a deeply spiritual and righteous way. And the truth is, neither do we. We cannot live righteously apart from Jesus' grace and mercy in our lives. If we could truly understand how despicable our sin Our evil is in the eyes of an eternally holy, sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere-present God? If we saw that, our hearts would be as dumbfounded as if we just saw a life-threatening storm melt before us. If we saw that, our eyes would pop out of our heads as if we saw thousands of demons fleeing at Jesus' single word, go. If we saw that, our hearts would skip a beat as as when we stood up, maybe for the first time in who knows how long, and were able to walk home with no guilt in our heart and no shame in our soul. You cannot unhear this. Please don't walk out of here saying, oh, that's nice. I wonder who's playing today. Don't walk out of here saying, oh, this is wonderful. I think I've got some shopping to do. Jesus, the promised one, he went to the cross, offered his infinitely pure and righteous life in payment for the debt that our sins incurred, that we owe. Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, kept his promise to save, and he offers it to all. Jesus alone reveals that the Father's supreme glory for our um, eternal good so that we don't have to be afraid, not now and not in eternity. Maybe you notice, I mean, fear is all over every one of these passages. The disciples were afraid to die in the storm, and the possessed men were terrorized by the demons. But like the paralytic, we have nothing to fear when we entrust ourselves to the forgiveness found in Christ. By way of application for us this week, uh, maybe as Jesse comes out, he's going to play some music for us as we do some prayer and reflection. But first of all, this week, application, prayerfully, specifically, address the fear in your heart. Hear Jesus say to you, 
peace be still. And bring the truth of Scripture to bear on your fears that would cause you to hold on to something and push Jesus away. Respond respond in faith knowing that God is sovereign and he will intervene for your eternal good and for his supreme glory. And to help us with that, I want to ask us to do some reflection. I know I struggle with taking time just to be listening to something and reflecting. And so with the the gentle music going in the background, I'm going to read some scripture passages and I want us to linger over these truths. So let's go to God's presence together in prayer. Father, help us. You said of your your son, Jesus, that this is my son in who I am well pleased. May we, may we find our greatest treasure in him. So that when we sense our hearts being fearful or drawn to something else that is unhealthy, alert us through your spirit. Draw us back to you. Father, the early disciples, they wondered in awe of Jesus. Who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Father, take our worry and turn it into wonder. And Father, help us to see our own sin. Help us to see our sin so clearly that it humbles us and that it crushes us. And then, Father, help us to remember that Jesus said of himself, the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, to forgive our sins, to save us. Father, for those of us who have placed our trust for eternal life in Jesus, We're standing on your promises. And though we know that the storms of life obey Jesus, we're still afraid. And in our fear, we hold dear to things of this world. We hold those in one hand and we push your son away with the other. Father, that not ought to be. So deliver us from our fears. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our idolatry. Save us from our pride. Whether at our homes or our jobs or at our schools, save us from ourselves. From our distracted, complacent, fearful selves. Draw us close to you once again. That you may send us out once again. Send us out as your family with a courageous heart, a humble soul, and a sound mind. And all of God's people said, Amen.